We'll continue our study in the book of Philippians, and we'll be looking today at the second half of uh, verse 18 uh, through verse 26. Philippians 1, 18 to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, I think of the words of the Heidelberg Catechism in which we say that our comfort in life and in death, our only comfort in life and in death, is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we look to these words this morning, we ask that you would help us to enjoy more of that comfort. And we pray, Lord, that as we look to these words, you would help Christ to increase in our, in our sight, in our minds, in our hearts, that we would come to glory in Him more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we saw in our last study in Philippians, Paul has been imprisoned for Christ. And yet, though Paul is imprisoned, he's able to find a joy in his circumstances as he saw how his trial had uh, served to uh, really serve to advance the cause of the gospel, both through Paul's new prison ministry and also through the emboldened uh, ministry of other people. And looking back at what has happened on account of Paul's affliction, he's able to say that because Jesus is proclaimed, I rejoice. And in the second half of verse 18, Paul turns his gaze uh, from looking back on how his affliction had, had served the cause of Christ uh, to looking forward and rejoicing at what God will do. He's looked back and found reason uh, to rejoice, and now he's pivoting and he's looking ahead and he's going to find reasons for why he should continue to rejoice. Now as we look at Paul's forward-looking reflection, we're going to find uh, in these verses just immensely, uh, uh, we're going to find them to be immensely practical as they speak to two realities that are universally and simultaneously experienced. Realities of both living and dying. Every worldview, whether you're a theist or an atheist, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a, a practitioner of New Age spirituality, must deal with two basic questions. First, there's the purpose question. What is my purpose in life? What am I, what am I here for? 
And then there's the destination question. What happens when I'm no longer here? Right? What happens when I die? For a worldview to have even the slightest value, it needs to deal with these questions. And before we consider what the Bible says about these questions, by way of contrast, I want to consider how a secular worldview, that is a, a worldview which uh, has, uh, doesn't believe in a, a transcendent reality, how a secular worldview would answer these questions. Regarding purpose, a secular worldview must ultimately say that purpose is an illusion. At the end of the day, purpose is something that we uh, create or manufacture for ourselves, as, as um, the famous uh, astrophysicist uh, Neil Tyson, uh, deGrasse Tyson uh, has said. It's as if we're all given a blank sheet of paper and we're just told to craft our own purpose statement out of nothing. Just write it down. What do you want to live your life for? Purpose in a world where God is non-existent or where he is not involved is entirely a personal choice because there's no objective, uh, uh, overarching standard by which our purposes are determined. And that might sound freeing to you, but in reality, that's problematic on a couple of fronts. First, first, if there's no one or no thing outside of ourselves that sets our purpose, then we have no way of evaluating whether our purpose in life is good or beautiful or true. So if someone's purpose is uh, to destigmatize pedophilia, all we can say is we find that disagreeable, distasteful. And what's more, rather than being a, an intrusion upon us, Having to construct your purpose from scratch is an exhausting enterprise. But what about the destination question? Where are we going? What happens when we die? When it comes to the destination question, a typical response that you would find from the man or woman on the street is to ignore death, suppressing any thought or question of it. So we euphemize it. We speak of someone passing away, going to a better place, we hide it, moving it away into hospice care, and we don't see death. We avoid it. But of course, these days, major news outlets are, are serving the Lord's purpose in that they won't allow us to forget that we are creatures who, unless the Lord comes back, will die. Or in some cases, it's thought that we should just talk about death to remove its stigma. One international movement that uh, has sought to do this uh, is um, a movement which has created these things called death cafes. There are over a thousand of them worldwide, including one that has met at least a number of years ago in Grand Rapids, where you can gather, if you want, for tea, cake, and a chat about how you're going to die. By talking about it, the founder said, we can mitigate fear. We just need to matter-of-factly accept that death happens. It's a reality of life as, as commonplace, whether it's, it's by old age or by accident, but it's a reality as commonplace as puberty. But is that really the sense that we get when we are standing in front of the open casket or when we're trying to console the grieving mother? That death is just natural and we should accept it. By contrast, the Bible comes at both of these questions differently and comes to different conclusions. We don't manufacture or invent our purpose, as the seculars say. Neither must we seek to resolve the problem of death by ignoring it or simply numbing ourselves to its sting. 
In our passage, in just seven and a half verses, Paul gives us the basis for a Christian answer to both the purpose question and the destination question, which presses upon each one of us, whether you're here today as a Christian or not. Paul's worldview, if we can speak in this way, is one that enables Paul to find joy, joy, not just resignation or acceptance, but joy in life and in trial and in the face of death. Paul's joy in life is found in Jesus being exalted and Jesus being enjoyed. And this shapes how Paul views his his purpose in life And it it shapes how he views his hope in death. So in our passage, Paul invites us to see what matters most to him, to see his desire, to see how he wrestles to apply that desire, Paul's dilemma, and what he ultimately decides to do, his decision. So for our note takers, that's going to be our outline, okay? Paul's desire, Paul's dilemma, and Paul's decision. And in these verses... Paul shares his perspective as an authoritative apostle of Christ. He shares his perspective with the Philippians and with us so that we, along with Paul, we would begin to see our living and our dying through the lens of Christ. So let's dive in. Paul begins in these verses by saying that he expects his joy to continue because he knows that his imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance. Now, what does Paul mean by this, his deliverance? The idea of deliverance could mean, uh, uh, Paul could be speaking about the fact uh, that he thinks he's going to be rescued from this life-threatening trial. He's going to be saved from prison. He's going to be rescued from danger. It's physical deliverance. See in verse 25, Paul comes to a tentative conclusion that he thinks that this is probably what's going to, be ha- what's going to happen. He's going to be released from his chains and set free to continue his ministry. More likely, however, is that this deliverance that Paul has in mind is not strictly a deliverance from bodily harm. The word uh, for deliverance here is frequently uh, has spiritual connotations. And the rest of verse 19, Paul connects his deliverance to not being ashamed of Christ, but rather courageously honoring Christ in his body, even if that meant that Paul should not physically be delivered from his chains, but die. Paul wants uh, uh, his hope in Christ to be vindicated, and he wants to uh, honor Christ in his body. So in chains, facing legal issues, potential torture, potential death, Paul's desire is that through it all, there would be nothing in him that would cause reproach to come upon the cause of Christ makes me think of the story of the Anglican bishop, Archbishop Thomas Cramner, under the reign of bloody Queen Mary. Cramner had been persuaded uh, of the truths of Scripture uh, taught in the Reformation, and he had been imprisoned uh, under Queen Mary uh, and was persecuted for several years. But through mistreatment and through the cunning of, of Mary's henchmen, Uh, Queen Mary persuaded Cramner to uh, uh, sign a statement renouncing the Reformation and several important biblical doctrines. And after Cramner signed this statement, uh, Mary made sure that it was published throughout all of England to the discouragement of true believers there and to Cramner's shame. 
And while Cramner would eventually recant his recanting, and God would use Cramner's uh, moment of weakness to advance the gospel, it's likely that Paul has uh, this type of situation uh, here in mind. He senses that he needs to be and he will be delivered from this type of scenario. Paul doesn't want to shrink back in his trial. He doesn't want to be ashamed in his trial, but he wants to honor Christ in it. This word, which uh, our ESV Bibles translate as honor, is the Greek word megaluno. Now, I give you the Greek word not because you need it, but because it's a fun word to say, and because by hearing it, hopefully you'll get a better sense of, of what Paul intends here. Mega meaning loud or great. Think megaphone, loud voice, loud noise. Well, here, megaluno means to show as great or to magnify as the King James has it. So like a telescope, which helps us to see brilliant stars and massive planets clearer and more close up, Paul wants his living and dying to be like the lens of that telescope that helps us to see more accurately the greatness of Christ. Alec Motier puts Paul's motivation vividly when he writes, Paul leaves no room for uncertainty on this score, that is, about Christ being honored in his body. His task, whatever the future turns out to be, is not to carry a snapshot of Christ in his wallet for occasional sharing with chosen people, but to show an enlarged, life-sized Christ to all who care to look, a Christ displayed in Paul's every dimension and capacity, a Christ magnified in my body. Paul's concern for his chains, whatever the outcome, whether it be life and freedom or whether it's torture and death, was that the praiseworthiness of Christ would be on display in him. And where that happens, Paul says, I can rejoice. Now before we go any further, there's a relevant point which we need to make concerning how Paul expects that he's going to be able to stand in his affliction and honor Christ. Do you notice uh, verse 19? In verse 19, uh, there is a ton of practical theology. Paul expects that Christ will be megalunoed, he will be magnified in his hardship through, and notice this, the prayers of the Philippians and the help of Christ's Spirit. Do you ever question whether prayer makes a difference? If God is in control, as we confess uh, uh, that the Bible teaches he is, then what does prayer accomplish? Are we just wasting our time because God's got it planned out anyway? If God is the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, if he's the final cause of Paul's deliverance, then, then what are we doing? But Paul, who believes this, is able to, to uh, believe on the one hand that God is, is sovereign, he ordains all things, and yet he's able to insist upon the power and efficacy of prayer. It was through, it was in response to the Philippians' prayers that the Holy Spirit would empower Paul to shine brightly in his trial. So Paul sees his Christ-exalting testimony in this trial as accomplished in an important sense through the prayers of his fellow Christians. So let's just slow down to catch the significance of what this might mean for us as we face difficult situations, a hard marriage, a long-term illness, chronic pain, walking through a deep disappointment, 
facing hostility as a Christian. Think about what this means for our, our missionaries and our church planners who are, are facing uh, particular pressures on, uh, as, as they start new works for Christ. As they face opposition. How are they, how are, are you, how are we going to be able to magnify Christ in our circumstances, particularly when they're difficult? Well, our responsibility is to pray. We need not only to pray for our fellow Christians that they would be able to stand firm and honor Christ in their circumstances, but we must also seek the prayers of other people for ourselves so that we can make much of Christ wherever He puts us, that we might not be ashamed of Him. God intends to work through such prayers to help us stand. And not just stand, but bring honor to the name of Christ. So if Paul the Apostle is uh, counting on the prayers of the saints on his behalf to enable him to glorify Jesus, how much more should we sense our need for the same? But here's what we've seen so far. Paul has one goal in his hardship. It's not to get out of it. It's not uh, that he would just be able to endure it stoically like a tough guy. What brings Paul joy Echoing what we heard last time in Philippians, what brings Paul joy is is that here, Christ will be glorified. Empowered by the ministry of, of the prayers of his fellow believers and the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul's hopeful that Jesus is going to be glorified in me, whether, whether I live or whether I die. And Paul doesn't know which of these outcomes will be the result, living or dying? And it's the two possibilities before him that lead us to our next point. In verses 21 to 24, Paul shifts his attention to consider which of these possible outcomes would he himself choose, to live or to die? And he finds himself torn between these two outcomes. Some have called these verses St. Paul's dilemma because he's hard-pressed to pick which one Paul, as he writes this, he he shares his thinking. He shares his wrestling uh, with the Philippians. He invites them in. And so let's consider both of these alternatives before we ask why Paul has shared this with us. First, Paul considers uh, uh, continuing to live. If you had asked um, my teenage self what life was all about, I might have told you to live is basketball, okay? Uh, I eat to play basketball. Uh, I, I, I get schoolwork done just so I can, I can ball. That's all I wanted to do, okay? Well, if you ask Paul, he'd quip as he does here, to live is Christ. I eat, I sleep, I serve for Jesus. Paul's going to go on later in the letter to describe his conversion by saying that he presses on to know more of Christ because Christ has made him his own. You see, Christ has, by His Spirit, He's stepped in and He seized the Apostle Paul, like someone pulling out a, a drowning man from the waters. And as a result, the life I now live in the flesh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. Paul's been captured by one who loves him, by one who's given his life for the forgiveness of his sins. And Paul sees then the Christian life as one being motivated by Christ and directed toward the glory of Christ. 
Now, that might be a little uh, too uh, church speak for us, so let me try it this way. For Paul, to be someone who belongs to Jesus means that we make decisions about our time and about our money and about our relationships based upon what will most show others that Jesus is worth trusting in, that Jesus is worth loving, that Jesus is worth obeying. There's an alignment of life's priorities and actions so that people would be able to look at your monthly expenses or your calendar or the things you talk about and say, Jesus must be really important. Jesus must be really great. And the fruitful labor that Paul talks about in verse 22 is his effort to have people come to see this very thing, the greatness of Jesus. Fruitfulness for Paul is to help other people see that Jesus is to be trusted in. And then he's to be trusted in more and loved more and obeyed and worshipped more. To live is to live for Christ, says Paul. Now on the other hand, there's the possibility of death for him. The chance that he would trade his chains for the executioner's block. And Paul is wrestling whether this is what he would choose. It's strange to us. Would he choose the executioner's block? And in fact, Paul strikingly says, to die is gain. Now, like we've said, most people want to put death out of mind. Others uh, try and normalize death. Even those who would support something like euthanasia, medically-assisted suicide, which we could not support, but those who would support such a thing as desirable, they wouldn't be able to say what Paul says here. Death, where there's suffering, on that view, maybe can bring relief, but death cannot be gain. It does not positively give you anything. But Paul says, death is gain. Even more, considered on its own, Paul says that it, he would even far prefer to die now, if you're familiar with the Bible's teachings, uh, you'll know that there's all sorts of reasons the Bible gives to uh, Christians, to believers, for why we should be able to anticipate our death. Thomas Brooks, the old Puritan writer, uh, has a phenomenal funeral sermon uh, called The String of Pearls, one of my favorite uh, sermons, in which he identifies at least 20 reasons for why the Christian should be willing to die. It's a long sermon. But I would encourage you to look that up, the string of pearls. Now, to be clear, the Bible does not say death itself is a good thing. We're not to recklessly and without purpose endanger ourselves, nor we don't pr promote suicide simply uh, by appealing to death is gain. The biblical view of death is that death is an intrusion. It's an enemy, 1 Corinthians 15. Human death is a consequence of sin. But what the Bible does tell us is that God in his Son has done something to rescue us from death. He's taken death, that great enemy of ours, and he has forced it to become the uber service that brings his people into his presence. Death is truly gain. Consider that for the Christian, when we die, we exchange the company of sinners for the glorified saints of heaven and all of God's angels. We lay aside an imperishable, or a perishable body with its aches and ailments, and at the resurrection we will take up an imperishable one. Even greater, 
for the Christian is the fact that when we die, we lay aside our sinful nature and sinful inclinations. We can rest from our struggle with temptation and sin. And yet, as amazing as those realities are for us as Christians to anticipate, they're not what Paul most anticipates, nor are they things that the Scripture most anticipates when it considers the believer's death. The greatest hope in death of every Christian is that one day we will be with Jesus. Paul confesses in in 2 Corinthians 4.14 that we know that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Then a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks about how he would rather uh, uh, be uh, away from the body, speaking of death, and at home with the Lord. The Bible even tells us that it's Jesus' desire that his saints should be with him. I think of John 14, 3, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, speaking to his disciples, so that you would be with me. Or John 17, 24, where Jesus is praying before his crucifixion, and he says to the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory. For Paul... To die is to see his desire and to see Jesus' desire met. Death brings the Christian into the bodily presence of Jesus. In this life, we don't see Jesus in the flesh like the disciples saw Jesus after the resurrection. We don't hear his voice like Mary heard his voice in the garden on resurrection morning. But death ushers us into the presence of of Jesus so that we see our Savior, that man of heaven. We see the wounds that he suffered to ransom us, to free us from condemnation and bring us to life. We see the mouth by which he has spoken our names in intercession. We see him in his purity and his strength and in his splendor. And we see him smiling at us. This is the blessed hope of all those who belong to Jesus by faith. What could be any better than that? And it's why Paul says that to die and thereby go go to be with Jesus, this is way better. In the Greek, there's an, an emphatic sense here. And so then we ask, well, what does Paul want? Having listened to Paul think this out out loud, hearing his emphatic declaration that it's far better to go and be with Christ Paul's preference seems clear. He's going to want to go. Only that's not what Paul concludes, as we see in verses 24 to 26. Paul concludes that it's better for the Philippians that he remains in the flesh. So we want to ask the question, well, what has tipped the scales away from what was Paul's obvious personal gain? Remember that we said at the outset uh, about Paul that his driving concern is that Christ would be magnified. And Paul uh, uh, considers that to continue his earthly ministry to the Philippians and to others at this time will be what does that the most. Paul knows that God could take him, contrary to expectations. He doesn't know for certain how things will turn out. He says he's convinced, but you'll also concede in in chapter 2 that maybe his life will be poured out like in a martyr's death. 
Whether he lives or dies, it's not ultimately Paul's decision. He knows that. When, when death comes, Paul's going to rejoice. It's, it's his gain. But as he thinks about things from his finite, limited perspective, Paul's life, he knows that his life is not ultimately about his own advantage. And this is the important point that Paul wants to make for his readers. It's why he invites us in to his deliberation. What sways Paul is not personal pleasure or preference. This is the perspective that Paul wants us and he wants the Philippians to, to absorb. That the Christian life is one that is meant to be lived for the glory of God as we seek the good of others. We're not just talking about good in a, in a generic sense here. We do nice things for other people. No, Paul qualifies what he means in verse uh, 25 in a way that I find absolutely delightful. Right? He, he says he sees his continued life his continued ministry as being meant for the progress and joy of others in the faith. The purpose of the Christian life is to glorify God, which we do in part by helping others to enjoy God forever. So where our desire is to see Christ honored, this desire should translate into a willingness to lay aside personal advantage for the spiritual well-being of others. This is the Christian's purpose in life. We glorify God, which involves us seeking to have others grow in Jesus and grow in their enjoyment of him. So Christian, do you ever struggle with a sense of purpose? Maybe you feel a little adrift. You wonder, what am I doing? You're uncertain of what you're doing uh, with your life, what it's, what it's all meant to do. Well, well, here's your purpose statement. Retirees. As long as God grants you breath, you're here for the progress and joy of your brothers and sisters in the faith. So pray for us, encourage us, instruct us, remind us of the faithfulness of Christ. Stay-at-home moms, in between scraping cereal off the walls and cleaning up whatever uh, uh, is going on, whatever the latest mess is, you ever wonder what you're doing with your life? Well, here's your mission statement. Right? Christ is worthy of all praise. And God has given you kids so that you could labor for their progress and joy in Jesus. Right? This is the perspective that gives meaning and purpose to our, whatever our station is in life. And we're gripped by the worthiness of Jesus. It's meant to, to change our entire outlook on every situation. Even the worst of trials. So as we step into them, we can be, uh, go with the confident expectation that here is a new chance to magnify Jesus. We think Christ must be honored here. As long as God has me here, I'm going to figure out how I can point others to Jesus, believers and unbelievers alike. So let me close with a testimony of what this can look like what this does look like in one particular situation. Several years ago, I came across a video about a woman named Jen McManus. And the video displays a series of photographs of Mrs. McManus. She's a wife and mother of three small children. While we hear her voice tell her story. And as the photos show, Mrs. McManus with short hair, She's obviously sick. She's in waiting rooms. It becomes clear to us that she has cancer. 
She tells of how she was told that the cancer had returned and how that made her feel like the earth was giving way beneath her feet. She tells of the renewed treatments. And listen to how she finishes her story. She says, Every time I go to a new doctor's office, it feels like I'm feeling closer, getting closer and closer to death. The people get sicker and sicker and sicker each appointment. And that is scary. And I wonder, is that me? Am I that sick? Or am I going to get that sick? I was afraid of death. And I would be a liar to say that I'm still not. But I'm not scared of dying. I'm scared of missing out on life. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to grow old with my husband. And I want to see so many more people come to the Lord. But I trust that God's plan is perfect. Cancer has made death more real. It's made the gospel more real. Because I know where I'm going when I die. So many people whom I love don't. And I've wasted so many moments that I could have shared the truth of the gospel And I didn't because I was scared. And I don't have time to be scared anymore. I find hope in the promise of a life lived forever. And I'm joyful because of the gospel and because of the story that God is telling through my life. And I'm excited that I get to point people to Jesus. And I'm excited that at the end of the day, Whether I live or die, God wins. Harvest, this is what Paul is talking about. This is the perspective that he wants us to embrace. That as we're gripped by the worthiness, the loveliness, the beauty of Jesus, that we would face death with hope, with the hope of a a life lived forever with Christ, But until that day, until that day when we go to be with Jesus, we live our life with joy and excitement in pointing people to Christ, our Savior. May God grant that here in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make it to be so for us, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we would more and more give expression with our life to the glory of Jesus and our desire to see others glory in him with us. And that we would give expression in our life to the hope that we have in Jesus that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. And Lord, with all of our days, however many they might be, however long or short our life might be, give us this perspective, that we would, we would find joy and we would rejoice in seeing our life in some way, by your power, help others to make progress and joy in the faith and thereby enjoy Jesus and glorify him with us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
I'd ask that the elders now come forward.